we get to do Pentecost today. Uh, one of the questions that I want you to file away in the back of your mind as we look at this text, look at the event of the original Pentecost, is this. Is Pentecost repeatable? I'm going to show you evidence from the text that it is. It is it, you know, the original Pentecost happened uh, in the latter part of May in the year 30 A.D., probably. So it is a historical event. We're going to look at the historical event, but uh, um, I think it is also a repeatable event. You're going to see it repeated, actually, in the book of Acts. So uh, if you do conclude it's a repeatable event, then the question you need to ask after that is, have you experienced it? Again, the book of Acts is very much about the acts of the Holy Spirit, about the church being a spirit-inspired um, people of Jesus. So follow away those questions, kind of keep them um, in your mind as we look at the text. Uh, I'm, I'm going on a little assumption that the story of Pentecost, the first one, the original one, is rather familiar. So um, particularly when I get to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, uh, I, I may try to speed up just a little bit. Uh, I'm assuming you, you, you're, you're familiar with Pentecost. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, you need to understand that Pentecost was a thing, was a day, was a celebration before we Christians ever had anything to do with it. Pentecost means the 50th day. In the Jewish community, and you have to understand that, this, to understand this text, in the Jewish community, the festival of Pentecost, that's a Greek word, the festival of Pentecost is their festival of first fruits, uh, their festival of harvest, their festival of weeks. It's called weeks because it comes seven weeks, and then the day after the seventh week, the 50th day, it comes seven weeks uh, after the Passover Sabbath. So again, that's a, we're part of where we get the chronology of Jesus. He dies during Passover. He is raised from the dead. Um, on the festival of first fruits, and then um, uh, 50 days later, uh, 40 days later comes his ascension. 50 days later comes his giving the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. So you're going to see a Jerusalem that is packed with pilgrims in this text, and it's because all these Jews from all around the world, that world of that day, made their way back to Jerusalem. Uh, to celebrate the festival of, uh, of Pentecost, uh, Shavuot. There are three festivals in Bible times. They're still important today, but three festivals in Bible times when the temple stood, there were three festivals that, if, if at all possible, you made it back to Jerusalem to celebrate those three festivals as a Jew. Uh, you would come from Rome. You'd come from Bithynia. You'd come from Alexandria. You'd come from wherever in the ancient world, the Mediterranean Basin, back to Jerusalem for one of those three festivals. Uh, Passover, uh, then you have uh, Shavuot, which is 50th day after Passover, which is one we're looking at. And then you have one that's actually going on right now in the Jewish world. Uh, the festival of Sukkot is going on right now. That's the festival where they build uh, temporary shelters or tabernacles in their backyard or on their rooftop, uh, and, and they, they remember the wilderness wandering and the giving of the law. But there were three festivals, three Bible festivals that Jews, if at all possible, you made a pilgrimage, pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. You see Jesus doing that, by the way, because um, he was within 100 miles of Jerusalem when he was doing his ministry in the Galilee. So this is a Jewish holiday. Uh, to begin with, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Uh, the all here is probably the 120 that you've already seen referenced. Probably more than the 12. There are 12 now because of Matthias. Um, probably the 120 that you've seen referenced, which is the uh, Jewish 
um, the Christian Jewish community, Jewish Christian community in, in Jerusalem at this time. So they're all together in one place. Um, inquiring minds should say, wonder what place. And that does become important, too. Pay it, you know, I'm, like I think I've told you several times when I was teaching undergraduates New Testament, I realized part of, I, after about three years teaching, I finally realized I was, what I needed to do first was teach them how to read. Um, what's on the page, not what they think's there. How to ask the right questions. So where is this place? We're in Jerusalem. It's during the Jewish festival of Pentecost. That's not accidental. Uh, they're all together in one place. They, they may very well be in the upper room at this point uh, because there's 120 to start with. But the, you're going to see a reference to a house. But you're going to see where they go from the room, which is significant. So anyway, they're all together in one place. Verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound. They came from heaven a sound like. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. Um, sort of like a tornado or a hurricane, sound of a mighty rushing wind. You probably know that the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, from which you get pneumonia, the Greek word for spirit means breath or wind. Uh, the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, means breath or wind. So uh, it's very logical that um, when the Holy Spirit comes to empower the church, uh, there is something like the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Uh, and it filled the entire house. There's the word house. So they're in a house, probably John Mark's mother's room, the upper room. Um, when we go to Jerusalem, we kind of show you a place that sits in this location. Uh, and it, but it has to be a house big enough, a structure big enough for these 120 people, at least at the beginning of the story. So they, they're in this house. They hear this mighty rushing wind. Um, they were sitting in this house when they hear this mighty rushing wind. Verse 3, and divided tongues. What that means is, I think the, what the biblical author, what Luke is trying to get at, they, they probably first saw something like a ball of fire, which fits Old Testament um, theophanies or visions of God. They probably see something like a ball of fire, but then that ball of fire separates. It divides. And you're going to see what happens. Uh, some of that fire sits on top of each of the people in the house. Uh, and divided tongues as of or like fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So they had this piece of fire over each one of them. Again, um, at this point, we're still in Jerusalem. The people that are involved in the Christian experience are, are Jewish. So you know about Mount Sinai. You know about the Shekinah glory. You know about the clouds that typically um, um, happen when God shows up. So all of this looks very, very Jewish. Uh, the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, the fire. The, the There's going to be a sound, too. The fire, the sound. Uh, it's like a theophany, a vision of God, like Moses would have gotten on top of Sinai. So these divided tongues of fire set on each one of them. Verse 4, and they were all. The all's important. It's not just the twelve. They were all. And the all, by the way, as you've already seen, this all involves women. You're going to see that in a couple more places. So they were all. Not just some, not a select few. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we'll, we'll have lots of opportunities through the rest of the book of Acts to talk about baptism of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, all that language that the early Christian community used. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began, by the way, you, you, know, you know how to read. If it began, that means it continues. And they began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And these tongues are going to be explained a little bit later in the text and other places in the New Testament. So that's, um, that's the event. That's the event of the Christian Pentecost that happened on the Jewish Pentecost. Uh, Jerusalem, during this festival, probably goes from about 25,000 residents to as many as 200,000 residents. Same would have been true for Passover. Same would have been true for Sukkot. 
Um, so it's a packed city, and you see that beginning at verse 5. Now that you've seen the event, um, you get a little more background as to what's going on here. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. Yeah, you don't need a theology degree to figure that one out. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. So there, there's Jews in Jerusalem, but you're going to see that there's going to be Jews from all around the word is the diaspora, the dispersion, the scattering of the Jewish people. They were scattered all over the ancient world, the Mediterranean basin. By this point, they get scattered beginning with um, the Babylonian captivity, 586 years. Um, well, actually, even earlier than that, uh, around 723, so almost 700 years before Jesus with the the, the Assyrians coming to the northern part of the kingdom, then Babylonians coming to the southern part of the kingdom. The Jewish community gets scattered from Jerusalem. They get carried off in exile. Even in Jesus' day, there were more Jews outside of what we would call the Holy Land than living in the Holy Land. Um, they are in the process, have been for a while, uh, beginning in the 1880s, 1890s, and it it grew. They've been in the process of regathering themselves to a homeland, uh, almost in some of your generations. Uh, 1948, State of Israel is formed. Uh, it was only like the year 2006 that finally there were more Jews in Israel than New York City. So the diaspora is still very, very real. Most Jews are still outside their homeland, but they're in the process of returning. That was the situation with Jesus' day. More Jews outside the homeland than there. But they, if at all possible, they returned for those three festivals where the Bible commanded them to return, such as this one. So yeah, that's why there's Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Not every nation. I don't think there's any Chinese there. But every nation that was known to these people, the Mediterranean Basin, northern Africa, what we would call southern Europe. Uh, that was that was the world of their day. They they knew about other places, but um, and you're gonna see you're gonna see you're gonna get a geography lesson in a minute to see exactly what their world is. So all these people are gathered there in Jerusalem when this happens to the early Christians, and at this sound, again you you've seen the sound, heard the sound, and at this sound the multitude came together. These are people outside watching, listening to this going on with the Christians. They came together and they were bewildered. I'm sure they were. Uh, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them, hearing these Galilean apostles and the other Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and these people from all around the world, they were hearing them speak in their own language. Um, I'm not sure Peter knew exactly what he was doing, but when Peter would speak, you know, there'd be somebody there uh, that would be listening, that would hear Peter speak Latin. Um, there's about 15 languages represented in this list that's coming. So um, they're all speaking what doesn't make sense to them, but the people are hearing uh, these, these, these early disciples, particularly the apostles, speak in their language. So there is, in a sense, a miracle of hearing going on as well as a miracle of speaking at this point. So verse 7, And they were amazed and astonished. I'm sure they are. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? Well, they are. They, they have a Galilean accent, and they even dress in certain ways that show they're not Judean Jews. They're Galilean Jews from up north around the Sea of Galilee. That's who Jesus' primary followers were. Um, so are not all these speaking who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own language, native language? Here's your um, geography lesson. It starts if you're standing in Jerusalem. This starts like in the in the in the northeast from Jerusalem. So here there were Jews from Parthians, Medes, and the Elamites. Those are to the east. They're actually outside the Roman Empire. They're far enough east. Residents of Mesopotamia, that's the old Babylonian Empire, again, sort of to the east. Judea, that's where we're at. There are Jews from where we're at, Judea. Um, Judea. 
uh, and Cappadocia. At this point, you have to jump up into what they would have called Asia Minor or Asia, what we would call Turkey. Cappadocia, um, Pontus, which is still in what we would call present-day Turkey, Asia, because that is what the Romans called that, Asia. After we come up with another Asia, we, we start calling it Asia Minor, but that's what the Romans called what we call Turkey, Asia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, again, they're in what we would call Asia, what we would call Turkey. They called Asia Minor. Um, Egypt, you kind of know where Egypt is to the southwest. Parts of Libya, getting a little further away in northern Africa, belonging to Serene and visitors from Rome. Uh, that's why, by the way, as an aside, that's why when Paul writes his letter to the church at Rome, it is a vibrant, thriving Christian community, and he's not been there. And again, inquiring minds should say, well, how did they get started? There were Jews from Rome here on the day of Pentecost. Uh, the oldest, by the way, the oldest continually in existence um, Jewish community today is in Rome because, again, they were sort of ran out of the Holy Land for a while, but uh, they, they've been in Rome since, since, since New Testament times. So, um, yeah, they're visitors from Rome, both Jews. So all of these are what we would call, there's two kinds of Jews at this point, and this is going to come into play later in the book of Acts. There are um, Hellenistic Jews, those are the Jews living in the Hellenistic world or the Jews who are living around the world. Um, and then there's the Hebraic Jews, the ones who are living in Judea. So again, some of these Hellenistic Jews, they'd be speaking all sorts of languages. The common language would have been Greek, but they'd be speaking some other languages. So you've got Jews and proselytes. You know what a proselyte is. A proselyte's a convert like Luke, um, sort of, like Luke. If you go all the way, you're a proselyte. So those have been Gentiles who had embraced uh, the Jewish faith, and they had so embraced the Jewish faith, they were being obedient uh, to the Jewish law and returning to Jerusalem for this festival. Um, proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. What they call Arabia, and by the way, what Paul will call Arabia, is what we call, well, they, it was the Nabataean um, Empire, but it's um, Jordan, the state of Jordan, particularly the southern part of the state of Jordan and further out into the desert. Any of you ever been to Petra? I've been to Petra, yeah. Um, that would have been the old Nabataean uh, Empire. That would have been what Bible people would have called Arabia. So they're not talking about Saudi Arabia. They're talking about that region over there on the other side of the Jordan, out in the desert, Nabataean um, Empire. And when, when, when Paul goes to Arabia for three years, that's where he goes. He doesn't go to Saudi Arabia, doesn't exist. But that's what they call Arabia at this point. Anyway, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So again, a miracle of hearing, a miracle of speaking, uh, fire, sound, mighty rushing wind, um, quite an event. Uh, and, 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 yeah, they're all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? I'm sure that's what the crowds are saying. But others, mocking, said uh, they are filled with new wine. Um, they're drunk. <laughs> that's why they're doing this. They're filled with new wine. Um Peter's going to address that accusation in a moment. And we learn something from the way Peter addresses the accusation. But Peter, keep going, verse 14. This is where you've seen, you've seen Pentecost, first four verses. You've seen some description of who all's there in this geographical lesson. Now Peter's going to preach. Don't lose sight of that. Peter, the coward, is going to stand up. And I'm going to show you why I think in a moment it's a huge crowd in front of them. They're out of the house at this point. These people in the streets are hearing and seeing and listening to them speak in their own language. So they have moved at some point out of the house where they were. They're in the open air. And I, I, the text, if you read it closely, pretty much tells you where they're at. So here's Peter. You remember the coward, the one who betrayed Jesus. Now he's standing up in front of the whole city of Jerusalem, almost. And he's going to proclaim Jesus. Something He's had resurrection, now Pentecost. So he's ready to go. 
This is what Jesus told them to wait for in Jerusalem before they went out evangelizing. So Peter's ready to go. He's had resurrection. He's had Pentecost. Peter, standing with the eleven, the other eleven, lifted up his voice. That's one word in the Greek. And it does mean very excited, very exuberant um, speaking. You know, theologically, I'd probably say anointed speech. The Holy Spirit's helping him out here. He's lifting up his voice, and he addresses them. Men of Judea. And you can translate that, by the way, and I'll tell you why it's important. In some of your translations, to men of Judea, you just as easily can translate that Jews. You Jews in front of me. So notice after Pentecost, after resurrection, Jews that embrace Jesus don't suddenly become non-Jews. He's still referring to them as Jews. So he's preaching to the crowd. Men of Judea, and is the, the 120 and the crowd, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, because you can have Jews who don't dwell in Jerusalem, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk. We're, we're grateful for that one. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, there's something important about the third hour of the day. One, what time is that? The Bible may tell you. 9 a.m. Yeah, if the day begins sort of sunrise, 6 a.m., third hour of the day is 9 a.m. So, yes, too early to be drunk is part of what he's saying. But it's really beyond that. Uh, the third hour of the day you learn in the book of Acts is one of the stated set prayer times in the temple. The last verse of Luke's gospel tells you that they spent time after Jesus, um, during those 40 days and then after the ascension, they spent time in the temple praying. And Jews have set prayer times, like Christians do throughout most of our history, set prayer prayer times. Uh, Third hour, uh, sixth hour, um, ninth hour. And then, then sundown. Those are sort of the stated prayer times. So, you know, when he says they're not drunk, it's only the third hour of the day, he's not just making a reference to how early it is. He's saying this is the first prayer time, third hour of the day, way too early, first prayer time. So um, that's why a lot of us at this point, and for other reasons too, by the way, they're, he's in the te- they're in the temple at this point. They're in the temple for the first prayer time. We see them in the book of Jews being obedient Jews, in the book of Acts being obedient Jews going to the temple for the prayer times. Um, They just didn't pray when the Spirit moved them. They went ahead and scheduled prayer into their life to make sure it happens. By the way, I recommend that to you. Don't just pray when the Spirit moves you. Go ahead and schedule. Put it on your calendar. Put it on your schedule, or it may never happen. Well, the Jewish community did, and the Christian community throughout all our history, we've sort of said stated prayer times are, are smart ideas. Bracketing your day, punctuating your day in prayer is important. We don't tend to do that, so we don't think anybody else has ever done that. But that's been the tradition of Judaism and Christianity. So being the third hour of the day, they're in the temple. Well, again, they have to be somewhere else. I mean, to have the 120 in a house is pretty phenomenal. That's a big house. But you sure aren't going to get all these other people in that house. So they're outside. Um, we, We assume that they're, we would be definite to say they're in the temple at the prayer time. So uh, then you say, where, I wonder, wonder where they're at in the temple. Uh, there's only one option, if you remember your temple, that was called, well, there's two options, the court of the Gentiles or the court of women. Uh, if they're in the court of men, there could be no Gentiles or women present. So they're in the court of Gentiles or court of women. Um, for those of you that have been to Israel, with me or with anybody, I'm sure you probably well, you you've been to one of my favorite spots that's been excavated in the last few years, and we, we tend to call them the teaching steps. Any of you have a memory of the teaching steps? Those are the steps that have been excavated, leading from the lower city, uh, the city of David, leading from the lower city into the temple. Um, 
and they're even built in such a way, you know, long step, short step, long step, short step, long step, short step, so you can't run into the temple. You've got to kind of pay attention walking up these steps, uh, so you enter the temple reverently. Uh, we call them the teaching steps because we see in the Gospels, that's one of the places Jesus did a lot of teaching. And you can go there now. I, I've spoken to 140 people on the teaching steps. Uh, it, it's, you get a lot of people on those teaching steps because they're massive steps going into the southern part of the temple. Um, they were in the temple. Uh, they probably had to be in a place big enough for this crowd that we see assembled. So probably teaching steps, maybe the court of the Gentiles, or probably even the court of the women would be a little bigger. So anyway, we sort of know where that, but they're in the temple, and that's important too. Because one of the things that's happening here is the Shekinah glory is, re, is, is refilling the temple. You may remember Ezekiel chapter 10, or just Bible history. Um, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, left the temple, right? Shekinah, yes. Ezekiel 10, the, 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 you know, you see the Shekinah glory going into the tabernacle. You see the Shekinah glory going into Solomon's temple. Uh, but you see the Shekinah glory also leave the temple uh, in Ezekiel. Um, we, we assume that when the second temple was built, Shekinah glory may have refilled the temple. Because in Jewish theology, that's where God dwells. That's where God's presence is manifested. Well, to do Christian theology, we don't say now, where is the temple? We say, who is the temple? So where, what is the temple now that the Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit, fills? Us. When Jesus says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about the community. We're the new temple. We don't, nobody, nobody has to go to Jerusalem now to get forgiveness. Um, you can help them out on that one right here in High Point. Because we are the new temple. So part of what you see happening here theologically is the Shekinah glory, the presence of the Holy Spirit, filling, filling the temple that is the, the body of Christ, the people of Jesus. So, um, yeah, they're in the temple when the Shekinah glory fills the temple, the people of Jesus. So... Peter's going to preach. He's then told them they're not drunk, but now Peter's going to preach. They're not drunk because it's a time of prayer, third hour of the day. And we are here in the temple because it's the third hour of the day. So um, he's going to preach. We've already seen this in the book of Acts. You're going to continue to see this in the book of Acts. There is one way and one way only Christians in the book of Acts preach. And that's from Scripture. Not from Sports Illustrated or Time Magazine or Wall Street Journal. Um, there was no concept that preachers were to be storytellers or comedians or after-dinner speakers. Um, every time you see them preaching in the book of Acts or hang out with Paul for a while, they're, they're taking a text and expositing the text. You see the text that Peter's going to take. Verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So his text is going to come from Joel, what we'd call chapter 2 of Joel, where the early Christian community said this day was prophesied in that Old Testament text. Because, again, they preached Scripture, and the only Scripture they had was what we call Old Testament. New Testament's in the process of being written. So uh, as a good Christian preacher, he takes the text, and he sticks to the text. Um, anyway, he's quoting Joel. You can go back to chapter 2 and read it, but here he's quoting Joel, which says, And in the last days it shall be. A, a common assumption in the New Testament is the last days are not the 21st century. They include the 21st century. Notice what the Bible says. Know how to read. He's saying in the last days God declares what is happening will, will happen. So the last days in Christian theology began uh, with, with the ascension of Jesus. The last days is the whole church age. The last days is, that's the whole period from the ascension of Jesus to the return of Christ. The last days, because redemption was accomplished on Calvary, verified in the empty tomb or the resurrection, 
that redemption is spreading or being worked out right now in the church age. And one day is going to end when the kingdom comes and there'll be nothing left to redeem. Um, so the last days, and this occurs frequently in the New Testament, the phrase last days doesn't just refer to your lifetime. It refers to this whole church age. Uh, because this whole church age was is a new age. It's the age of the Holy Spirit. It's the age of gospel proclamation. So anyway, so that's why, that's why Peter's taking this text that says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my, flesh, my spirit on all flesh. And Peter's saying that's what's happening. It's prophesied, Joel chapter 2. Uh, God says there would come a time when he'd pour out his spirit on all flesh. In the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go in people's lives. The Holy Spirit would come and go in people's lives for the purpose of some task or some job that God had given them. In the church age, the Holy Spirit resides, indwells the people of Jesus. He doesn't go and come from us. Um, and notice it says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And he's going to explain that, but before he even explains that you know what the word all means. That includes men, that includes women, that includes all ethnicities, that includes all cultures. So um, Peter's saying, you know this, because you've read the book of Joel. This is what was prophesied in the book of Joel. There would come a day, one day, when God would pour out his flesh, on, pour out his spirit on all flesh. Uh, and then he, he continues to read from Joel, and your sons and your daughters, daughters, shall prophesy. What does it mean to prophesy? It means to speak the mind of God. Um, you, if, you, I give you permission to translate prophesy as just simply preach. To prophesy is to speak the mind of God. Um, again, we know what preaching is to be. It's not sharing my ignorance with you, hopefully. I was ordained to preach the faith of the church and none other. Um, we know what preaching slash prophesying is, is speaking the mind of God, is being able to continue in that line of prophets that says, thus saith the Lord. That's what's important, not what thus saith Jeff, but thus saith the Lord. But notice that spirit that allows you to prophesy slash, priest, uh, slash uh, preach falls on your sons and your daughters. You're going to see, you're going to see the daughters of Philip later in the book of Acts prophesying. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Uh, he's saying the church will be even a church of slaves. We'll have free and slaves. You see this throughout the rest of the New Testament. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they all, they all shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Uh, if you want to, you can interpret that symbolically as something happened, something changed in the cosmos at this point. But also don't forget that some of that happened at the crucifixion of Christ. The sun refused to shine. Um, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So that could be referring to this day that Peter is experiencing, or it could be referring to the to the day, capital D, the final day when the Lord returns. And he may be at this point using Joel to come to the jump to the end of the church age. Because in verse 21, he kind of tells you the purpose of all this. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not just Jews as chosen people, but Gentiles like you and me. Uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's because of this uh, prophesying, preaching, where the Spirit of God can fall on all flesh. Uh, that's so that the world can hear the gospel. Again, part of the reason for the languages, the mysterious appearance of languages here on this day, is it points to the fact the gospel is supposed to go to the whole world. The other thing, don't lose sight of this. Part of what's happening on Pentecost when the people of all these lands, from all these lands, they're Jewish, but from all these lands, they're hearing, they're hearing the apostles in their home languages. One of the things Luke wants you to think at this point is the Tower of Babel reversed. 
Remember what happened at Babel. They were get, humanity was given different languages and there was confusion. Well, here is like it's reversed. All the world is to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, Peter's preaching. He ain't got away from the text yet. He's still reading the text. But look at verse 22. Men of Israel, we're talking to Jews here. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Another important point of Christian theology and preaching. He's using Joel to talk about what it is the people are witnessing and experiencing on this day according to the work of the Holy Spirit. But he's not preaching the Holy Spirit. We don't preach the Holy Spirit. We don't preach particular experiences with the Holy Spirit. It's real clear in the book of Acts what we're to preach, or better yet, who we're to preach. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. So he's going to go through the life of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And verse 23 is one of my favorite texts for, for a reason I'm going to share with you. Uh, he's talking about Jesus. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was not a tragedy. It was not an accident. It was the plan of God. It was foreordained by God. But look what comes after the comma. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So is it the preordained will of God that Jesus die, or was it the result of evil people killing Jesus? And the proper theological answer is what? Yes. And the New Testament has no problem with that. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, yeah, I know we have a little difficult time with that. It's either got to be God or us. That's how we do it in our simple thing is either God or us. Uh, the New Testament, particularly the Hebrew way of thinking, doesn't have a problem with that. It can be both God and us. Uh, so Peter's saying that. So don't lose sight of that. Also notice something else Peter's saying. He was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We Christians need to continue to repent that we ever thought, that we ever acted, as if all the Jews killed Jesus. We used to call them Christ killers. That's why, you know, Martin, um, the Nazis used some writings from Martin Luther to destroy the synagogues and, and, and do some of the horrible things they did to Jews uh, in Germany at that time. We, we still didn't, and we, we pretty much did this without paying attention. The Holocaust got our attention. Since World War II, we've paid a little more attention uh, to, the, to our language about the Jews. Christians can become anti-Jewish and not even know they're doing it. But yeah, throughout much of our history, we have been horrible to the Jews. Um, the, the Muslims and the Jews didn't enter into a conflict till, well, they were in a conflict from time to time, but they didn't get into a major conflict till the state of Israel was created in 1948. Throughout all the history of the Jews, it was not the Muslims that were the enemy. We were their enemy. The Inquisition was established to do what? Force conversion on Jews because they're Christ killers. And, you know, as we, as we continue to think about Jesus being the incarnation of God, by the third century, we're saying you're not only guilty of, of killing Christ, you are guilty of deicide. You killed God when he showed up. So, yeah, we've done horrible, 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 horrible things to Jews throughout our history. And, uh, again, what happened in Nazi Germany is not just a, a total aberration from what we've done for 2,000 years. Um, I'm glad God is using that to teach us that we need to be very much in a state of repentance for the ways we've create, treated Jews. But part of it is we, we've had language. Jews are Christ killers. Jews killed Jesus. That's not New Testament. Notice he's still continuing to call these people Jews after they become Christian or after they experience the Spirit. And he's making it really clear Jews didn't kill Jesus. Some Jewish religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem killed Jesus. Show you how easy this can be done. 
if you look at those old movies, well, let's do let's do um, um, the one with where, where King of Kings, not the 1927 silent version, but the 1964 version. You, you remember those movies about Jesus? You know, you'd see Pontius Pilate, you know, taking Jesus and, and Barabbas and offering them to the to the to the crowds, and here Hollywood, that would be. 25,000 Jews in front of Pontius Pilate, screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Some of you have been to the streets of the old city of Jerusalem. It's not as wide as this room. So only people that had been screaming at Pontius Pilate would have been a few religious leaders of the Jewish people there in Jerusalem which is why they wanted to make sure Jesus was on the cross by 9 a.m. I mean, before the crowds get up, he's, they've been taking care of Jesus. So, yeah, we, were, we just had no, we, we weren't reading the book when we spent 2,000 years condemning Jews. They killed Christ. And, and we've even used um, that phrase that the high priest uses in the book of Matthew, where the high priest says, you know, in Pontius Pilate saying, you really want to do this? The high priest says, let his blood be on us and our people. Well, the high priest said that. So we said, aha, we'll, okay, okay, high priest, we'll let the blood of Jesus be on all your people. But we have 2,000, there's lots of books out there that are interesting that can, that can attract the horrible ways we've treated Jews for 2,000 years. Which doesn't make any sense. I mean, Two-thirds of our Bible is the Hebrew Bible. It makes no sense. But people in power do things like that to people who are not in power, regardless of what their theology is. But anyway, I want you to notice through the book of Acts, the, the early Christians who are all Jewish, Luke is probably a God-fearer connected to the Jews, but other than Luke, they're all Jewish. Yeah, there's no way they'd, there's no way they'd be condemning the Jews for killing Jesus. There are some religious leaders. So the hands of lawless men... And Peter could have named them for you, if you'd ask. It's not the whole Jewish people. Verse 24, let's wrap it up. Verse 24, God raised him up, losing the pains of death, because it was not possible to be held by it. By the way, you know, Paul says the wages of sin is death. We human beings die because we sin. That's part of our human condition. That's our terminal disease that we have. We sin, so we all die. Well, the pangs of death could not hold Jesus because Jesus was not sinful. He's going to make that clear. Because as soon as he says that, it was not possible for, for Jesus to be held by the pangs of death. For David says, he's going back to the scripture. For David says, he's going to quote Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you would not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Well, he's going to go on and tell you that, that can't be David speaking for David. Because David definitely died. And definitely, de David definitely saw corruption. You know, I, I, it's not historical, but if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to show you the tomb of David. Not that I'd want to open it up, but if you open it up, probably I don't know what's in there, but it'd be bones and dust. You know, David died, David corrupted. So uh, what the New Testament preaching is saying here, what Peter's saying here, when, the, when Psalm 16 makes a reference to somebody, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Can't be David, so it's Jesus preaching Jesus from the 16th Psalm. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He's, he's preaching Psalm 16 to preach resurrection. Uh, so let's wrap up the sermon. We'll look at the response to the sermon next week. Brothers, these are all Jewish folks who are in the process of experiencing the Spirit. Uh, there's going to be some massive conversions. Brothers, I, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, he died. And he was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Don't think it's the one they show you if you go there today. But Peter's day, they, he said, the tomb of David's here. 
So David did see corruption. David's not talking about David in Psalm 16. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades. Hades is not just a polite term for hell. Hades and hell are different in the biblical literature. Uh, Hades is just the place of the dead. That's why oftentimes the King James just translates the word Hades as the grave. So yeah, he you know Jesus did descend to Hades, not to hell. He did descend to Hades. He went to the place of the dead. Jesus really did die. You know he he was he was God incarnate, but he really did die. It was not just a quasi pseudo death. He really did die. Uh, he, but he was not abandoned to death, not abandoned to Hades. Nor did his flesh see corruption. Because he had no sin. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Again, that's what makes them apostles. All these people saw the resurrection. We are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. That's the place of authority in the ancient world. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, uh, you know, he was... Uh, he, he was crucified, dead, buried, raised from the dead, 10 days with his followers, um, ascended on the 40th day. 10 days later on the, Pente- on the day of Pentecost, he sends, Jesus baptizes his followers with his spirit. Sending them for the Holy Spirit is just the spirit of Jesus. Uh, so uh, Pentecost is the spirit of Jesus coming back uh, to be with Jesus' people. Um, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, this is Psalm 110, and this is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament and the New Testament, as far as the number of times it's quoted in the New Testament. And it's a verse a lot of people don't even know, but it's an important verse. It's the first verse of Psalm 110 where the the psalmist says, The Lord said to my Lord, Huh, looks like there's two lords there. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You want to know what's going on in the world today? Um, The Lord, God is making the Lord Jesus Christ the ruler of creation, and he's in the process of making all of his enemies his footstool. That's why the New Testament Christians love this verse. It is quoted three times, I believe, in the New Testament. And then notice how Peter wraps up the sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord. I'm going to come back and talk about the word Lord. And Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There's the end of his sermon. We'll pick up at verse 37, which you'll see the response and you'll see the creation of the early church. Um, The word Lord, make sure when you see the word Lord, you're thinking about that in a Jewish context. You know, um, the Jews would never understand creating a house of parliament and calling it the house of lords. They would never understand having anybody else called Lord. Um, In the Hebrew Bible, the word Lord, Adonai, is reserved for one and one person only. God. Nobody else is called Lord. I don't care what they do in Great Britain and England. Nobody else is called Lord in the Hebrew Bible except God. So when you have all of a sudden in the New Testament, him being referred to as the Lord Jesus Christ, we know what that means in the Jewish context. He's, he's God. Whereas the creed says, very God of very God. He is God incarnate. Yeah, we don't, you know, sometimes in our culture, because we come out of England, or at least some of us come out of the United Kingdom, for us, Lord means head honcho, which that's true. It should be your head honcho. But Lord in the Jewish way means God. As a matter of fact, every time they saw the personal name of God in the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh or Jehovah, they didn't say it. They said Adonai, Lord. That word Lord is used for one and one person only. That's Jesus. So in the New Testament, what's the oldest? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says the oldest creed of the church is very simple. Jesus Christ is Lord. 
But when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, make sure you know what that means. Uh, we used to ask candidates for ordination. These are seminary graduates. Um, one of the things they had to write a paper about, about was um, to, to define, exposit, discuss that phrase. Jesus Christ is Lord. You'd be surprised, or you probably wouldn't be. These are seminary graduates. Um, how many times they, Jesus, they talk about what that name means, Christ. They've talked about that meaning the anointed one of God. Um, Lord, they'd talk about head honcho. And I'd always let them do that. And then I would say, okay, now talk to me about the use of the word Lord in a Jewish context. And I'd kind of push them toward divinity. Not just head honcho that might be serving in the House of Lords in Parliament, but, but divinity. And then I really freaked them out because after I finished with that, I said, okay, now talk to me about the word is. Because notice the creed was not Jesus Christ was Lord. It's not even Jesus Christ will be Lord one day. That is that the New Testament gives you is really important. I mean, you know, I grew up in a church where I always heard that language of where we were invited to make Jesus Christ Lord of our lives. And that's okay. You need to kind of do that. But somebody needs to tell you, guess what? Even if you don't make him Lord of your life, he is still Lord. Every knee will bow one day. Those of us who are smart enough are the ones who bow their knee, knee now to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, so when, when Peter climaxes his sermon by saying God has made him Lord in Christ, a good way to end a sermon. So uh, you're going to see the conclusion, and then you're going to see that 3,000 are come to Christ as a result of this sermon from Peter. And I'm going to tell you where you baptized 3,000 people at in the city of Jerusalem. Okay, let's pray together. God, I give you thanks for these people that are so faithful to study your word and to know more about you. God, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You haven't told us everything we perhaps want to know, but you have told us everything we need to know. You have told us more than enough about who you are, your character, than we ever need to know in this world. You've given us enough revelation of yourself and your will for us that we can live faithful lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. Help us to submit to you and help us to make it very practical by submitting to your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Make a new friend in the room before you leave. See you later.